There's some notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along on an outline, have some idea of where we're headed this morning. Our passage all month is going to be Matthew chapter 1, so you can find the first chapter in the New Testament. Last week we started this series called What Child Is This? And I introduced you last week to a guy named William Chatterton Dix and told you a little bit about his life. One of the things I told you is that as he struggled with depression in his life, he found some relief writing hymns and writing Christmas carols. And I told you that the song, the carol that he wrote that we know today and that is probably his most famous work is the hymn, What Child Is This? What I didn't tell you is that he originally wrote it as a poem. He didn't set it to music. He didn't write it originally as a hymn. He wrote it as a poem, and the poem was called The Manger Throne. The Manger Throne. It wasn't set to music, and the music was added many years later. Somebody came along and took this poem that Dix had written and set it to a tune, and they picked a traditional English folk song called Green Sleeves. It was not a religious tune. It was just a secular tune, a traditional English folk song, and married that tune and the lyrics together, and we have the hymn, What Child Is This, that we sing today. And it's an interesting note of history that a lot of our hymns came about in that way. Somebody wrote the lyrics down, maybe as a poem, maybe without musical tune or accompaniment information, and somebody came along later and added a different tune or their own tune or an older existing tune and set those words to song. And that's what happened with the, the hymn, What Child Is This?, The central question in that hymn is obvious. It's in the title. It's just a reflection on who is this baby that we celebrate at Christmas? Who is this child that we see kings from the east coming to bow down and to bring gifts to and to worship? Who is this child? Last week we looked at Matthew chapter 1 and the answer was simple. This child is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the anointed one, and we talked about what that means last week. This morning, the the big idea of our passage is very simple. Same passage, Matthew chapter 1. What child is this? This child, Jesus, is the son of Abraham. The son of Abraham. And as I've thought about this series, and I've thought about the answers that we see in the the Gospel of Matthew here in chapter 1, this is, to me, one of the neatest titles, one of the most rich, theologically important titles that we ascribe to this baby that was born in Bethlehem. He is the son of Abraham. And it's something we don't talk about very often, mostly because we just tend to ignore the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. We turn to it, we see the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we look at all these names and we say, well, that can't be very important. So we just skip down to the next section, verse 18, and we say, ah, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That's where the story really begins. But if you jump down there, you miss a lot of what Matthew's trying to say to us. And I just want you to understand, when Matthew wrote this gospel, right, he's trying to connect it to the Jewish scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. And so what he says in the very beginning is extremely, extremely important. And so we're going to read the whole chapter, all of Matthew 1, every Sunday in the month of December. We're going to read these names, and we're going to think about what it is that Matthew's trying to get across to us not only in the Christmas story, but in listing Jesus' family tree. So here we go, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to the end of the chapter. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac 
and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we take time this morning to think about Jesus as the son of Abraham, that you would give us understanding, that you would give us wisdom, Father, that we would see the importance of this story, the centrality of this story, the necessity of this story, not only for our lives, but for your reputation. Father, we pray for for God-given, spirit-given wisdom this morning, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Quick poll. I don't want to leave anybody out or make you feel excluded if you don't raise your hand to this question. I don't want you to feel bad, but I'm just curious. How many of you, when you were a kiddo, went to vacation Bible school? At least one time. Raise your hand. Okay? A lot of you went to vacation Bible school. How many of you, again, not to embarrass you if you don't know, but 
How many of you remember singing the song Father Abraham when you were a kiddo? Remember that? You're in for a treat this morning. If you've forgotten or you need a refresher or you've never heard it, you're welcome in advance. You're welcome. I'm not doing the whole body, all the arms and legs, all that. You're welcome. I defy you not to sing that song at some point during the day today if you know that song. It is in your head for the next month, all the way up through Christmas. You're going to be singing it and humming it. And you're walking down the street, going to school, you're going to be singing, Father Abraham. It's in your head. It's done. Sorry. So a couple thoughts about that song. One, the arm motions are clearly designed for Vacation Bible School when you got a room of about 55-year-olds who are bouncing off the walls, and you say, we got to teach some Bible and burn some energy at the same time. we got to kill two birds with one stone. So you come up with the motions. Secondly, the tune is terrible. It's just a cheeky, horrible, not a good song. It's a children's song. It gets stuck in your head. It's just not a good tune. Now on a serious note. Okay? You maybe have never thought about this. That was a she singing, right? And she was singing. It was not a he, it was a she. She was singing, Father Abraham had many what? I am one of them. So a lady singing, I am a son of Abraham. It's kind of strange, right? Maybe not in today's age. It's not so strange, but it's still kind of strange. It's kind of strange. Also, I'm just going to point out the obvious. I picked that version. There's lots on YouTube. If you don't like that one, get on. You should check them out. There's all kinds of demo videos for how to do Father Abraham. But I picked this one for a reason, because that woman, that she, was clearly not Jewish, If she took the little ancestry DNA kit and did the stuff and sent it in, you know, they put the people on the commercials and they say, oh, who knew? I'm from Germany, not France. Big shocker. Wow. Never saw that coming. She's not going to get it back that says, hey, guess what? You're full-blood Jewish. You can look at her and you can see she's Asian. She's not Jewish. Ethnically, biologically, her DNA. What I want you to see this morning is that in spite of all that stuff, my vote is that we keep the VBS song, Father Abraham, exactly the way it is. Unless you come up with a better tune that we can insert, maybe we'll use green sleeves or some other old hymn tune could, could spice it up. But we're going to keep the motions because the kids need to burn the energy at VBS. And we're not going to make it, quote-unquote, politically correct by saying, Father Abraham had many children, I'm one and you're going to keep it. Father Abraham had many sons. That's important. We're going to see why that's important this morning. And we're not going to try to make it sort of uh, racially inclusive by saying, oh, you know, I'm Japanese, but I kind of like to be part of this family. We're going to keep it exactly the way it is. It's written the way it's written for a purpose. And we're going to see it this morning from Matthew chapter 1. We're going to start with a question. What does it mean to call Jesus 
the son of Abraham. And we have to go backwards into the Old Testament to understand this because Abraham is an Old Testament guy. So here we go, backwards into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God initiated, God initiated, God did it. He initiated a relationship with a man named Abram, who he later renamed Abraham. Abram means roughly loosely translated father of many. Abraham, roughly loosely translated, means father of a multitude. So this old guy at some point changes his name because God tells him to from father of many to father of a multitude. Here's the thing. We don't have time to read all of these Old Testament references, the whole story of Abraham's life. So I've put a lot of references on your notes, and you can go back and read those and dig around. We're just going to sort of fly over and hit the high points, okay? Abraham's story begins, if you're going from Genesis 1 moving forward, it begins in Genesis 12, but we pick up an interesting detail later in the book of Joshua. Joshua tells us in sort of one of his closing speeches to the people that Abraham's family, before they knew Yahweh, the God of Israel, the Lord, before they met him, they worshipped idols. They just worshipped all the other deities and statues and idols and gods and goddesses that everyone else worshipped. They were just like everybody else. And God was the one who came to Abraham and initiated a relationship with him. Abram didn't wake up one day and say, you know, I'm tired of all these gods and I need to find the one true God. He was just lost in his idolatry. And God, the one true and living God, came and appeared to him and initiated this relationship with him. And when God initiated this relationship with Abram, it was more than just a buddy-buddy deal. God said some pretty amazing things to this guy named Abram who he renamed Abraham. Here's some of the things he promised him. He promised him many children, promised him a special land. He promised him incredible blessing, blessing that's hard to even wrap your mind around. And then he, that is God, sealed all of these promises with a covenant. And I know I gave you a lot of blanks there, but these things are really important if you want to understand Abraham. And if you want to understand Jesus as the son of Abraham, he said, I'm going to give you many children. I'm going to give you your your own special land. I'm going to bless you in an incredible way. You can't even imagine. And then I'm going to seal all of those promises with the covenant. And the idea in this covenant is when God met with Abraham in the ancient world, when, when two guys made a covenant, when they made one of these sort of treaties, They would come to terms on what each one was going to do. I'm going to do this, and you're going to do this, and we're going to have this covenant. And they would take animals, and they would cut these animals in half and lay them opposite each other, two sides. And then the two parties to the covenant would walk in between these animals, and they would meet in the middle, and they would shake hands or fist bump or whatever you did in the middle. And the idea was, if you break the covenant or if I break the covenant, may we be like these animals that have been killed. May this happen to us if I don't keep my end of the bargain. This is the interesting thing. When God made the covenant with Abraham, they get the animals right. Abraham gets them ready and they lay them out on two sides. And Abraham gets on one side and God gets on the other side. And then God puts Abraham to sleep. Just lay down. And God walks all the way, not to the middle, all the way. And he says, I'm going to do this for you. It's not dependent on you. I'm not asking you to do anything for me. I don't need you to do anything for me. I'm just telling you that this is what I'm going to do for you. I'm going to give you many children, more children than the stars in the heavens. 
I'm going to give you a land to be your own land. It's going to be just for you. And I'm going to put a blessing on you and on your family. You almost can't use words to describe it. It's going to have global, universal impact. And I, the God who found you when you were lost in your idolatry, I'm going to do this stuff for you. So I made all these promises to Abraham. This was the funny thing about it. This guy Abraham, some of you know this, some of you maybe have never heard this. When God starts making all these promises to him, he's an old guy, pushing a hundred. He's old. And he doesn't have any kids. He and his wife Sarah have tried for decades to have children. We're never able to have children. And, funny thing about it, he's homeless. He doesn't own anything. He's just kind of wandering around. God told him, I want you to start walking, and when you get there, I'll tell you. So he's just walking. He has no home. He has no kids. He has a wife. He's got an AARP card he's had for a long time. It's worn out. I mean, the guy is old. And God shows up, and he says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to give you a home, a land. I'm going to give blessing to you and your family that's going to touch everybody on the earth. And I'm going to do it just because I'm God. I'm going to do it. And you know what the crazy thing is? He did it. Abraham, we just read right here. Look at Matthew chapter 1. Abraham had a son named Isaac in his old age. Then he had a grandson named Jacob. Then he had 12 great-grandsons. And they had kids And they had kids, and in just a few generations, Abraham's family is thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. You look at this very iffy beginning, an old guy with no kids, and you say, God came through on that. There's millions of people in this nation. He gave them a land. It took them a while to get there because they sort of went to the land and then they went and lived in Egypt for a while and then God brought them back out of Egypt and then the people he brought out of Egypt to go into the promised land didn't want to go into the promised land so he let them die and he took their kids. But eventually he got them into the land with Joshua, right? They went and they fought the conquest. They fought the Canaanites, these wicked nations that God wanted to punish and remove them from the land and he gave them a land. They had real estate, geography, put their dot on the map, and they had a kingdom. The first king wasn't so great, but the second king was pretty good. His name was David. And David had a son who started out gangbuster, Solomon. Things got so good under Solomon's reign for Abraham's family in this new kingdom called Israel, living in God's land, we call it the promised land. Solomon's the king that heads of state from other nations are traveling to Israel just to sort of bask in the greatness that was Israel. Just to be in the presence of the greatest king in all the world. I'm going to make this long journey just to come and to see him and to listen to him and to learn from him. And you're you're reading through the story up through Solomon and you say, man, it started off kind of iffy with this old, homeless childless man and his barren wife in the desert 
And God makes a covenant with him and he makes these promises and God starts keeping them one after another. And you get to Solomon and you say, man, this is a great story. And then Solomon kind of takes a nosedive. And then Solomon dies and after he dies, there's a, basically a civil war and the kingdom of Israel gets split into half. God's people, God's land gets divided in two. And idolatry runs rampant through both nations, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. We read in my Sunday school class, at one point they're even setting up altars to other gods in the temple that Solomon built for the Lord. In the temple that bore the name of Yahweh, they're setting up altars and idols to other gods and of other gods. And the wheels just come off the bus. And everything just goes haywire. And you look at these people that God created to be a blessing to the whole world, and you say, they're not a blessing to the whole world. They're just like the rest of the world. Following this goddess and this God and this idea and this fad, they're not blessing anybody. And it ends with the people getting kicked out of their land. It ends with a foreign army coming and slaughtering most of God's people. It's a tragic story to read at the end of 2 Chronicles where the king of Babylon marches against Jerusalem, the last sort of stronghold, and he kills most of the people who live there. He kills them. Abraham's family, he just kills them. And he takes a tiny remnant of survivors and he takes them out of the land. So the children are almost all dead and the few that are still alive are not in the land anymore and there certainly doesn't look like there's any blessing for anybody. Here's the idea you need to see. The exile of Israel from the promised land seemed to be the end of God's promises to Abraham. That looked like the end. The people get taken into exile and all of these things that God said he was going to do for this old, homeless, childless guy named Abraham, things that he had started to do in history, it's like somebody just takes an eraser and wipes it all away. Gone. And then, then, you turn from the last verse in Malachi, the last verse in the Old Testament, and you turn the page to the book of Matthew. And this is what you read. Verse 1 of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, we'll talk about that next week, the son of Abraham. This is what you got to understand. I know that if your Bible's like mine, you have a page that looks sort of like this. It says the New Testament, like what's before it is old and what's after it is new. I think if Matthew were here today and he saw that page in your Bible, he'd probably just rip it out. He just... I know it seems sacrilegious to rip something out of the Bible. I'm just talking about the one page that says the New Testament. I think you just rip it out. You say, what are you talking about the New Testament? You're like, there's, there's two stories in the Bible, part A and part B. There's one story in the Bible. And when Matthew kicks it off in what we call the New Testament, he's saying, this is not a new story. This is an old story. This goes all the way back to when God talked to that old, childless, homeless guy in the desert who was worshiping statues. We're talking about the same guy in the same family in the exact same story. The book of the genealogy 
of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. And Jacob and Judah and his brothers and Perez and Zerah, all the way down. You read all these names, you say, what does it really matter? It matters because this is the family that God said, I'm going to give you kids. I'm going to multiply you more than the stars in the heavens. And I'm going to give you land. And you're going to be a blessing to the entire world. And when you come to the end of Malachi, it looks like God has forgotten all of those promises. And when you turn to Matthew 1, Matthew is like got his megaphone out and he's saying, the story hasn't even started yet. We're just getting rolling. Don't forget about old father Abraham because this is his family and this is his family tree. This is his lineage and it's leading you right up to Jesus. So let's ask this question. Why do we celebrate Jesus as the son of Abraham? Why does it matter for us? We've, we've taken the story of Abraham up from Genesis all the way up to Christmas. Why does it matter? Let me give you four reasons. Number one, the birth of Jesus reminds us that God always keeps his promises. Always keeps his promises. He told Abraham, I'm going to give you kids, and I'm going to give you a place to live, land, and I'm going to give you blessing that will touch every family on the earth. God doesn't forget his promises. He's not like you and me when we say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and we don't make good on it. We forget about it. We intentionally don't do what we said we're going to do. God doesn't operate that way. And when you end in the book of Malachi, it looks like it's sort of iffy. Is God going to do what he said he's going to do for this guy, Abraham? And Matthew is shouting at the top of his lungs with Matthew 1.1 saying, God is about to keep all of the promises he made to Abraham. He hasn't forgotten a single one. He always keeps his promises. It may be slow in coming. It may not be on my timetable or your timetable or Abraham's timetable. But when he makes a promise, he keeps it. Number two, Jesus is the son of Abraham who was not spared and who died as a sacrifice. He is the son of Abraham who was not spared and who died as a sacrifice. This afternoon, I gave you all these Old Testament references, Genesis and Joshua and all these scriptures on your outline. If you go back and read only one of them, it ought to be Genesis 22. We're not going to read it this morning, but you probably remember the story. This is the story when Father Abraham was old, way advanced in years, way older than when we first meet him in the Bible. I mean, he's really old. Isaac has already been born. And one day, God comes to this very old guy named Abraham, who he's known for many decades now. And he says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and you're going to go and you're going to walk to a mountain and I'll tell you when you get there. God liked to say that to Abraham a lot. When you get there, I'll tell you. And you're going to offer him as a sacrifice because I'm calling your debt. You've done some terrible things in your life, Abraham, and you owe me. And there's got to be a sacrifice. So you take your son, your only son, 
the son you love, Isaac, and you pack it up and you head to that mountain, I'll tell you when you get there and you're going to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham's wrestling with this. He's thinking, I only got one. Is he going to keep these promises without this one? I'm older now than I was when he was born. And I know in our minds that we sort of, in Sunday school, we color the picture with 50-year-old Abraham walking up a hill with five-year-old Isaac. I don't think that matches the timeline. You're talking about old, old Abraham walking with older teenage boy, maybe even young man Isaac. Isaac's in on it. If Isaac wanted to wrestle his dad and come up with a different plan, I think he could have done it. The Bible says they wake up early the next morning and they set out and they've got the the wood and they got the fire and they're walking up the hill and the son turns to the father and you remember the question, he asks his dad, "Where's where's the sacrifice? Where's the ram for the offering? What does Abraham say? God will provide. Walk up the mountain. He gets ready to offer his son as a sacrifice and God stops him. And he provides a ram caught in the thicket. And he offers a ram as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And when Moses writes this story down in Genesis 22, he includes a, such an important, fascinating detail. It's just almost an afterthought when you read the story. Isaac's alive, the ram is dead, everybody gets to go home happy. And Moses says, to this day, when they walk by that mountain, Abraham's family, They know the mountain. When they walk by that mountain, they look up on that mountain and they say, the Lord will provide. God will provide. For generation after generation after generation, walking by that mountain, Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. On the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And when Matthew starts his story, With this line, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's a setup. It's a literary setup to where you get to the end of Matthew's story, and this son of Abraham walks up the very same mountains and dies. God's son. The Bible describes him as his only son. The voice from heaven at his baptism said, I am well pleased with you. I love you. And he's not spared on the mountain. For generation after generation, they walk by this hill and they say, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And Matthew is looking at you and I in the eyeballs and he's saying, on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided. He is the son of Abraham who died as a sacrifice for our sins. And Tony was exactly right in his prayer earlier. When we celebrate Christmas, when you celebrate Christmas, if you never get past the manger, if you never get past the shepherds and the angels and the wise men and baby Jesus, you've missed it. Because the baby born in Bethlehem is the son of Abraham, the one who came to die as a sacrifice so that we could live. He's the one that fulfilled the story of Genesis 22. And we look back with Matthew and we say, on the mountain of the Lord, it was provided.
That's why it matters. Two more reasons. Every Christian is a son of Abraham. If you're a Christian, you are a son of Abraham. Paul says this to the church in Galatia. These guys were confused about the gospel. Galatians 3.26, he says, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Listen to that. He's writing to a church made up of men and women, and he says, Through Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, son of Abraham, through Jesus you are sons of God through faith. It's kind of a popular thing today to go through the Bible and there's some places where you can change the word sons to children or offspring or something that's sort of gender neutral. Some people get bothered by that, some people don't. I'm just going to tell you this. This is one place you can't change it. You can't change it. It's not the point that you're sons and daughters. The point is that you're sons through faith. And the idea in Galatians 3 could not be more clear. Paul's telling the church in Galatia, when you come to Jesus in faith, when you realize that he's the son of Abraham who died as a sacrifice for your sins and you put your faith in him, you are united to him by faith. To use Paul's lingo, he says you are in Christ. You're joined together. It's like a marriage ceremony when two people come stand in this room and they take their vows and we say the two of you are now becoming one. You're connected to each other. That's the idea. When you put your faith in Jesus, you're united to him by faith. He's the son of Abraham, and you're united to him. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a Hispanic male. He doesn't see an Irish male. He doesn't see a Native American female. He sees the son of Abraham, Jewish male. You're son of God. All believers are sons of God through faith. All Christians are sons of Abraham through faith in Jesus, which leads me to this last idea. It's crazy. Every Christian has been grafted into Abraham's family. Romans 11. Such a neat chapter. Paul says in Romans 11, he says, I want you to picture Abraham and his family like this giant tree, right? Abraham's down here at the bottom. He's the patriarch, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and the 12, and everybody spreads out. All of his biological genetic descendants are part of this huge tree. He says, the problem is some of the branches in this tree, some of Abraham's kids were idolaters and they never believed the Lord in the first place and they associated with Israel but their heart was never true to the Lord and Paul says God takes those branches and he just cuts them off the tree he just saws them right off just because you were born into that tree doesn't mean you get to stay in that tree just because your DNA matches up on your ancestry.com kit to Abraham doesn't mean you get to be part of the tree he just saws those branches off those unbelieving branches And then in his grace, he takes people like you and me. And he does it just like he did it with Abraham in the beginning. We're not looking for God. He comes looking for us. He initiates a relationship with us, and he takes us. Paul says he grafts you onto that tree. You get to be part of that tree. Not because you're a good person. Abraham wasn't a good person. God just came, and he said this is what he was going to do. He was going to save him. He was going to use him. He's going to make this covenant with him, and it's the same with you. The Bible says that not one of us 
is righteous. No, not one. No one seeks for God. Nobody comes to God petitioning to be put into Abraham's tree. God seeks his people out. And he grafts his people onto this tree. You may have not ever read this chapter in the Bible. You know, maybe you've never thought about this before. I look around the room, I see some white people, see some Hispanic people, see some maybe Native American people, maybe some African American people, all sorts of different people. Probably not a lot of us are Jewish in this room. Probably a lot of us, at least half of us, if we sang Father Abraham by the letter, wouldn't be sons. And the vast majority of us wouldn't be genetically Jewish. And Paul says, you can keep singing the song. That's your song. Keep it at VBS. Burn the energy off those kids and sing the song. Just the way you've been doing it. Perfect. Because when you become a follower of Jesus, you put your faith in him, you become a son of Abraham. You get taken off of your tree, your English tree or Spanish tree or Mexican tree or Native American tree or whatever tree you started off at, and God just grafts you right onto Abraham's tree right where he wants you. You're part of his family. At Christmas, when we sing Christmas songs, you ought to throw in Father Abraham and just remind yourself, I'm one of his sons. There's many of us. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, so are you. So let's, pray, let's praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we believe that your word is true. We're amazed that you have taken us from our sin and our shame and our rebellion and you have put us into this family. You've changed our heritage. Father, we count all things in our past rubbish for the great value of knowing Jesus Christ and being a part of your family. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that he provided to pay our sin debt. We're grateful for the one who was not spared, your son, the son of Abraham, who gave his life so that we could live. And Father, I pray for those in the room, and maybe people in the room who are not part of this family, not part of Abraham's family. They're not followers of Jesus. And Father, maybe this morning they're not even looking for any of the things that we're talking about. But Father, I pray that you would go looking for them, just like you did for me, just like you did for Abraham, and that you would find them and that you would change their story. Father, what a great thing to celebrate at Christmas that the son of Abraham has been born, that you always keep your promises, that the final sacrifice for sin has been made, and that we've been brought into your family. Father, your grace is amazing, and this morning we want to lift our voices to sing with the angels around the throne, to praise you, to worship you for who you are, and for all that you've done for us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.